Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. Uh, today, we are continuing and wrapping up our discussion of the most famous of Great Lakes shipwreck stories, the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, before we get into things, a couple of patron shout outs here. One of them goes to Teddy, not a new patron, but congratulations on the promotion. It's good to have you up on the bridge with us. Also, we do have a new patron, uh, and that is Lake Superior. The whole lake, the gloat herself, uh, has become a patron of our podcast and has uh, retweeted a couple of our things that has gotten us a ton of attention. So we want to say a huge thank you to Lake Superior um, for your activity on social media and for sinking so many ships. <laughs> yeah, so today is a very special episode because we have returning champion Kaylee here with us. So Kaylee, how's it going? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you guys? We're very good. Yeah, very good. Yeah, it's cool. I'm glad we got to bring in another voice here to uh, to talk about the Edmund Fitzgerald. Uh, I guess treating this as as like a normal episode, we'll do our our weekly media check in. So Kaylee, what have you been up to? Uh, well, this is our busy season at the Visitor Center. So I haven't had too much time to do much besides uh, fight tourists every day all day <laughs> and also tell them about shipwrecks but mostly uh fight them <laughs> that's why uh duluth's tourism industry is suffering so bad yeah right the aggressive museum staff it's but. me versus them and they're winning mm -hmm. to put it <laughs> uh, i've been uh when i do have time to do other things uh i've just started uh kim kelly's new book fight like hell which is about um like a lot of unknown labor stories and it covers like like all sectors of like different labor stuff. So it's really, really interesting. And that's the only thing that I've been reading that's been non-boat related lately. Uh, I saw that you got the trial of the Edmund Fitzgerald in the mail at the 11th hour. I'm still waiting on it. So yeah, funny story about that. I ordered it and it got delivered, but I didn't see it till later. And, you know, Amazon sends you the picture that, Hey, we dropped this off. And like, I noticed that it was at my apartment complex, but definitely not at my apartment. So I went around and looked and like no one had it. And the place it got delivered has a uh, a ring camera out front. Mm -hmm. And so like they're one of my neighbors. It's clearly not theirs, yet it's gone. And they didn't give it to me. So the moral of the story is that the people with the ring camera are the ones to be suspicious of. They are the problem <laughs> in the community. They thought it was so interesting that they took it and started reading That's it. That's right. You're spreading the gospel. <laughs> Taylor, how about you? Um, I finished up The Indifferent Stars Above, the Donner Party book that I was reading. Uh, I think it's like the quickest I've read a book in quite a while. I just I fully went down that uh, that path. I don't know. It's really good. I'm ready to go visit Lake Tahoe and Donner Lake and all that and spend some time up in the mountains of California. Happy ending? Um relatively happy for the story i guess but um i know it was definitely a good book worth reading it kind of it ends up in napa valley which is one of my other favorite places to go visit so it's kind of cool just reading about some historical stuff that i had actually already been to and, and never knew kind of the full backstory of so it was it was a good book i enjoyed it it was good to take a little break from shipwrecks but i'm sure i'll be right back in there soon cool i started watching the boys on amazon Okay, I've been told that's good. I have not watched it. I've also heard that's good. I'm I I don't watch like any superhero stuff. 
same it's it's kind of like a send-up of superheroes but i i don't know i don't it's kind of like how i love the austin powers movies but i i've never seen a james bond movie right i I only like the satire form of it but it's really good um i found a new way that i want to die um in episode three so check that out (laughs) it's uh definitely worth watching i've been enjoying it cool i do have one more shout out here uh to the new podcast called avast Mm -hmm. as the name might imply it's a podcast about pirates awesome and paul who makes the show he has been um he's been a pretty active supporter of ours on twitter you know sharing uh commenting retweeting stuff and he's formerly of the varmints podcast the first episode of avast was just released this past week there's an introductory episode to check out if you think that's your thing uh if pirates interest you as it might if you're interested in maritime history check it out give it a listen yeah, that's something we haven't explored too much, but definitely like right in our wheelhouse, especially like focusing on North Carolina and all that with Blackbeard so much. So maybe yeah. maybe we can have some crossover there at some point. Um, also, happy Lake Superior Day to everyone. <laughs> um, yes. Oh, yay. The Lake Superior account, they retweeted our tweet about it and got us some attention, some new follows, which is obviously a good thing, but also... I'm sorry, new followers, you'll very quickly find out the nature of things. Um, You know, some of our tweets are very serious. It'll be like the SS Hamilton wrecked on this island in 1957 with only two survivors. And then a lot of our tweets will be like, she Carlin on my D until I Bradley. (laughs) I love your Twitter account so much. We'll we'll have these big influxes of followers. And then like, I'll notice that like, there's a a steady trickle of people unfollowing. It happens. (laughs) We are here to disappoint. It's okay. The survivors are the ones that we care about. Um, (laughs) So welcome new followers, whether you're here for the long haul or not. Let's get into this thing. So last week we gave an overview of the Fitzgerald's final voyage, and we discussed the role of Gordon Lightfoot's hit song in bringing the story to a wider audience and really cementing it in the cultural memory of the Great Lakes and, you know, the, the country, the world. (laughs) You know, there's a reason that, you know, we talk about this ship so much um, when there's a lot of, you know, very similar ships that have sunk on the Great Lakes. Right. So I did want to add in here and Kaylee, feel free to just jump in with your notes, with your thoughts whenever. And we'll we'll make make these things all fit together. Um, So in terms of continued search operations, you know, we left off this story where it's at the point where this realization has set in for pretty much everyone involved that the ship is gone. Right. Uh, We're not going to find her above water. You know, the Anderson, yeah, that's the Arthur M. Anderson, uh, along with some other craft in the area are conducting a search for the missing vessel. They're unable to locate her on radar. They can't contact her via radio. Um, The Anderson gets most of the laurels uh, during, you know, this, the telling of this story. Um, but one of the un- other vessels here that really undertook a lot of risk was the William Clay Ford, you know, sacrificing her own safety to go out into this storm to look for the Fitzgerald. We talked about her briefly. This was the ship that was already in Whitefish Bay. The Anderson had contacted her to check to make sure her radio was working uh, mm-hmm. when she was getting nothing back from the Fitzgerald. And then also to verify that the, the Fitz wasn't appearing on the Ford's radar either. So while the Ford was obviously unsuccessful in that attempt to find the Fitzgerald, really just getting out there was an admirable decision. Right. The Great Lakes Maritime Institute commended the Ford's actions as follows. 
On the night of November 10th to 11th, 1975, these men voluntarily left a safe harbor to face the dangers of gale force winds and vicious seas in the blackness of a storm which had already claimed as victim the steamer Edmund Fitzgerald to search for possible survivors of that disaster, exemplifying the finest traditions of the maritime profession. So the, the Ford, like the Anderson, is a ship whose legacy is really tied to that of the Fitzgerald. You know, she sailed from 1953 to 1987 when she was scrapped at Port Maitland, Ontario. Uh, just from reading around, you know, a lot of, of things on the internet, there's a pretty big shipwreck community. And a lot of people in that community remember her as a heroic vessel who doesn't really get the same recognition as the Anderson for risking the storm. For me, I think a lot of that probably comes from the fact that the Anderson is still sailing. Right. Um, she's still there. Uh, you can you can point her out. You can find her on you know, marine tracker apps, uh, you can see her in port and say, hey, that's the ship that was with the Fitzgerald. I, I think that really is a big reason, but also the fact that the Anderson was with her for, you know, most of that journey. We get a lot of people coming in here, like the Anderson is a pretty frequent visitor to Duluth. And uh, they'll be like, oh, is that like the same Arthur M. Anderson? Because, you know, sometimes they rename ships that have been scrapped. But we're like, no, yeah, that's the one. And like people <laughs> can't even wrap their heads around one that, but two that like the Anderson was older than the Fitzgerald by like, six years or something like that. So just that like, that's the same one. Although we always do the, when a ship's that old, it's pretty much been almost entirely rebuilt by this time. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's not as shocking as it sounds, especially in fresh water, but. It's yeah. like a literal like ship of Theseus situation. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say that to that tourist, but I didn't want to. Yeah, exactly that. I think the Anderson also gets a lot of the laurels just because like with how delayed the like Coast Guard search stuff was, which I have mm -hmm. some stuff on that. Like they were the first ones out there by a healthy margin. And like, so mm -hmm. was the William Clay Ford. It was a very mm -hmm. healthy margin by the time that any other like boats were able to get there. That's awesome that you have stuff about the Coast Guard search, because if you notice in the notes, I was getting to that and then I just stopped. Um, <laughs> so worked out well. Very cool. On the same wavelength here. Wavelength. Did you get that? I, uh, yeah, I did. All right. So a couple of the other ships I wanted to discuss here, just a, a quick little roundup of the, the other ships that were in the area uh, around this time. Uh, another one, I'm going to say it's the Hilda Marianne, a Canadian bulk carrier. Um, the Hilda Marianne left Whitefish Bay along with the William C. Ford with the intention of going out to look for the Fitzgerald. But after about 20, 30 minutes, uh, the Hilda Marianne was forced to turn back because of the conditions. So obviously, no ships really built for this stuff and kind of making the executive decision that, hey, this is just going to put more people at risk and probably wisely turning around. So others that we, we've kind of referenced were the Ava Fours, Ava Fours. I've heard it both ways. Let's go with Ava Fours uh, for the podcast here. Uh, the Non-Free and the Ben-Free, who were, all three of them were upbound, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And so they were involved in those conversations um, around, you know, can you turn around and help with the search? Um, with the answer being, no, that sounds like a bad idea. And uh, getting here to the U.S. Coast Guard, what I thought was interesting, and I didn't really realize it until, you know, well into the reading, you know, when you um, when you read accounts of the search for the Fitzgerald, one element that is, you know, kind of conspicuously absent is the Coast Guard. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in a lot of these search stories, obviously, you know, there's a Coast Guard cutter on scene sometimes as the first vessel. Um, but here, 
there's really no surface presence from the Coast Guard. And in some of the reading, it it, uh, it discussed a little bit about why. So yeah, Kaylee, if you've got stuff about the Coast Guard, go for it. So the Coast Guard response, conspicuously absent. So it was kind of a, they, the wrong, the right assets were in the wrong place kind of thing, which they did eventually figure out. But the very first one that was supposed to respond is, was a 110-foot-long harbor tug called the Nagatuck. They were ordered to stand by and like prepare to go out to search for the fits around like 7.50, 7.47 p.m. However, the Nagatuck at that time was out of service because they were getting the engines completely redone. So I don't know what exactly they needed to do, but they were able to get them fixed enough to go out to the mouth of Whitefish Bay. And they couldn't go out on the lake until the winds dropped under 60 knots because it's a harbor tug. <laughs> They're getting underway. An oil line breaks and they have to turn back around, go back to the dock, and then they can't leave until 9 a.m. on the 11th. So by that time, what kind of search and rescue are you even really doing? So they, right. they, got, to, they got to the scene around noon on the 11th. The bigger Coast Guard boat, uh, the Woodrush, the, they were the closest uh, 180-foot buoy tender to the scene of the sinking. They were in Duluth. Duluth is very far from Whitefish Point. Right. Uh, so they they left Duluth at uh, 9.30 p.m. on uh, the 10th. They don't get there, or sorry, they get ready to leave Duluth because they're ordered to leave Duluth at 9.30. They're underway at midnight. They get to the scene 22 hours later after 10 p.m. on November 11th. So again, at that point, you're just picking up wreckage. So they had the, the very first responders... Uh, were like the aircraft that left Traverse City after 10 p.m. and they got there around 11 p.m. on the 11th. But even then, I was thinking about it. Even if you have a plane there, even if there's a guy in the water, it's not 1983. The Marine Electric hasn't sank. The Coast Guard <laughs> swimmer program does not exist. <laughs> right. So, I was just I was just thinking about that that exact same thing. That yeah, like even if you're on scene, like you can't actually help these people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what they were able to do. But at that point, it was just collecting wreckage and things like that. That's a factor that was really interesting, you know, seeing kind of that that perfect combination of factors that is kind of keeping everyone out of the game. I thought you were going to say perfect storm. <laughs> I could. I mean, we can totally edit it together to make it sound that way. <laughs> I can edit this together to make it sound like anything. I could make you say anything. You have all the power. <laughs> terrible, terrible things. Still wouldn't be as bad as the Fox baseball broadcast putting the Yankees and Red Sox logos on top of Ground Zero. Yeah, that was, that was bad. amazing. As they did yesterday. <laughs> so um, there was another interesting article I came across here, and it was all about the weather conditions. Uh, it's called a re-examination of the ninth of the nine ten November nineteen seventy five Edmund Fitzgerald storm using today's technology. Today being, I think, two thousand six in this okay. article, relatively today. Uh, so this article presents a hindcast of the storm conditions that were present on the night that Fitzgerald sank. I'd never heard the term hindcast before. Me either. It is a forecast. Uh, backwards in the past makes sense sounds easy but but really just an analysis of the the observed reported factors and sort of giving you a little bit more information about what the sea conditions would have been like so this is commonly used to assess wave conditions at a specific place and time uh, you know from a time when maybe there wasn't as much data you know available 
So is this sort of like what they do with like um, tornadoes or something where like after the fact they'll analyze damage and stuff and be like, probably this was uh, I'm assuming like this, whatever. There's probably similar data and similar technologies involved. Interesting. Because for all their chaotic nature, waves are pretty mathematical mm-hmm. in terms of how they form really just as a factor of, of wind speed. Uh, so yeah, they're able to reconstruct quite a bit of data just from the observed conditions uh, from the time. Uh, it starts out with the discussion of wave formation on Lake Superior, which we've talked about a little bit. Some interesting facts here. Uh, Lake Superior is the largest of the Great Lakes in surface area, that we probably knew, at 31,699 square miles, uh, but also in volume, with a volume of... Did I write this correctly? 2,903 cubic miles. I don't know. Sounds uh, right to me. It's a lot of water. It is. I know it's three quadrillion gallons. That's <laughs> That is helpful in any way. <laughs> Can we convert that to liters for our metric? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> they just get freedom units today. <laughs> lake Superior has the capacity to contain the water volume of the four other lakes, plus three additional Lake Eries. <laughs> given its immense size it's capable of sustaining waves in excess of 10 meters or 33 feet uh, or the height of a four-story home so yeah data like that i think is interesting to look at because it sort of puts it in a context that people can understand you know yes this is a lake but this is a massive lake that behaves right. much more like an ocean uh, anyone who's lived in the great lakes region has read about the area or has listened to this podcast for any amount of time could tell you that you know these storms can be incredibly intense the meteorological history of the lakes really highlight the accuracy behind that uh, that kind of legendary term gales of november that's mm-hmm. immortalized in the song uh, we did an episode on the 1913 storm which sank 19 ships and killed over 250 people uh, that was november 7th through 12th 1913 before that there was the matafa storm of 1905 Yes, go Matafa. <laughs> go Matafa. <laughs> we'll talk about that at some point. Oh, we got Matafa. <laughs> I know we referenced that in the Benjamin Noble episode also. Yeah, we, we think about the Matafa all the time since it happened like a couple hundred yards from where I work. <laughs> that was November 27th to 28th of 1905. Uh, there was the Armistice Day storm of 1940, which, as the name would suggest, happened on November 11th. And November 9th to 11th of 1998, there was another historically significant storm. But with modern technology, similar disasters were avoided. You know, you've got predictive and preventative technology in place uh, by that point. So you don't have another one of these, you know, named storms that people are going to talk about on a podcast. It's just incredibly consistent. Like, November is a bad time to be on the lakes. Don't do it. Mm Yeah, it's that, um, you know, from the reading, the research that, you know, we've done and discussed, it really, it really is that perfect mix of, you know, the the good weather is done, the relatively good weather, but it's still close enough that you might be able to risk it. Mm-hmm. We're all really familiar with like Great Lakes weather, you know, having lived around there and everything. And I know my brief time in Superior, like I remember waking up in like November mornings and be like, oh, it's like 20 degrees outside. (laughs) This is different than even Milwaukee. Like this isn't, this is not the same. Head of the Lakes weather is its own little horrifying (laughs) thing. (laughs) So uh, a really interesting conclusion here from this, um, from this meteorological article. 
It has to do with Captain Ernest McSorley's assessment that the sea conditions experienced by the Fitzgerald were the worst he had ever seen. So McSorley had been a licensed sailor since 1938. Chief Mate John McCarthy since 1941. Uh, McSorley had been a captain since 1951 and on the Fitzgerald since 1972. So there's a ton of experience um, just Mm -hmm. with those two on the bridge here. Based on the observed conditions and the reconstruction described in the article, waves are estimated with a significant height of 7 meters or 23 feet. So as a reminder, significant wave heights is just a way to denote the average height of the highest third of waves. So this is not, you know, maximum wave height, but this is saying a good number of the waves you encounter are going to be, in this case, 23 feet high. God, that is, that's some big waves. That's too high. And um, so observations of Lake Superior indicate that waves of this height make up only about 0.1% of the waves recorded. So that in itself is is a bit of a rarity. And that these waves typically are traveling in a north to south direction. We've talked a few times about, you know, just kind of how waves work on Lake Superior, you know, traveling down uh, so that, you know, the the bottom of the lake is a little bit rougher. Um, So like in this situation, the Fitzgerald was taking that northern route to take a little bit of that shelter from the Canadian shore. So it's likely on the night of November 10th, 1975, this wave action was moving west to east. So excessive wave heights plus abnormal wave direction could have very easily made a situation that McSorley had quite literally never encountered before. Even in all that time sailing the lakes, this would have been a situation where between the intensity and just the way that the waves are behaving probably felt really uncomfortable in terms of what he was used to. Yeah, that's really crazy. I know we kind of talked about it in the first episode, but I can't imagine being like one of the younger bridge staff or something. You see like him look worried. You know, like if the captain's worried, then I definitely need to be worried. You know, he's seen this stuff forever. To think about how long he had been sailing for, to think that there's any situation he hasn't encountered is a little bit odd. So the the research team in that article concluded their findings as follows. Although the winds experienced on the evening of 10 November 1975 were not typical, they were also not rare, suggesting that this was not a climatologically extreme wind event on eastern Lake Superior. However, although the conditions are not climatologically rare, uh, it's likely rare for ships to encounter such conditions given the size of the lake, the fairly low number of ships, and the infrequent nature of such events. A ship following a similar course to the Edmund Fitzgerald, but six hours earlier or later, would have avoided the worst conditions associated with the storm. So she's quite literally in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. Saying this is a a fairly localized thing that pretty much just the Fitzgerald was in the perfect place to experience. You know, that, that comes up a lot in the different theories and people, you know, arguing over over what happened and. And one of the things always comes up is why did the storm sink the Fitzgerald and didn't really cause any major issues for other ships on the lake? And I I feel like that at least provides one explanation of they weren't all experiencing the same storm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got very specific localized conditions here that the Fitzgerald might be experiencing. Both the Fitz and the Anderson were like absolutely at the wrong angle, just Mm -hmm. getting the, yeah, obviously the Anderson fared better, but yeah, just the worst possible angle to be hitting those waves at. 
And I think that's interesting, though, because we talk about it so often, right? Like, the Anderson ends up weathering the storm. And if the Fitzgerald hadn't sank, it would have just been another story of a bad storm. But you get that chain of bad things happening where, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the hatches aren't secured properly or, you know, she's maybe the, the deferred maintenance is catching up. And now she can't handle that storm the way that you'd expect her to. And we start going down like that path of, of bad things happening. It also gets into, you know, obviously, the alternative theory of shoaling of, you know, if if the captain is maybe used to navigating a certain area under a certain wave conditions, you could very well think that he's he's perfectly safe somewhere. Whereas if the seas are behaving a little differently, maybe it isn't. And maybe maybe they do end up striking bottom. Mm-hmm. I know I'm sure that we'll get into more of the theories later, but there was one thing like speaking of why did some ships do better than the Fitz? Um, one theory I was thinking about today. And so you have the Anderson. Uh, there was also the the Wilfred Sykes and the Roger Blower out there uh, further away, but they ended up joining the search effort later and they were in some of the same conditions of the four, the Anderson, the Sykes and the Blau, uh, the Blau was new pretty much. So it was like two to three years old, but the Anderson was older and uh, the Sykes was old too. They had both been recently uh, like extensively worked on. So I I can't remember off the top of my head, either the Anderson or the Sykes had just been lengthened and they had both like, they both had new steel while of the four, the Fitz was the only one that didn't have like any new steel at all in it. Mm -hmm. So it also could have been like that plus like deferred maintenance definitely could have had a bit of interesting thing on the outcome. Sorry, that was a sentence that didn't have any structure to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Um, you know what I mean. That's always fascinating when there's like one factor that mm-hmm. kind of jumps out as being different. Also, as a total aside, every time I read about it, it's just very strange to me that these ships can just be lengthened. <laughs> Isn't that wrong? That seems wrong. <laughs> I say just. I know there's a lot of work that goes into it, but it's just very weird to me that you can like just make it bigger. Cut it in half and put more. Just in. drop a new section in there. Yeah, I'm of the opinion that I don't understand how boats float, and I hope no no one ever explains it to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, getting on to the, the next part here. I did quite a bit of reading uh, on this in, in terms of books about the Fitzgerald. There's quite a few books about the Fitzgerald. Books that are entirely about the Fitzgerald, or you know, you've got your books that are a compilation of different shipwreck stories, and they spend a significant time talking about the Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. So I did want to discuss some of those. And uh, Kaylee, if, if you've read some of these also. I need to run back to my desk to grab them because I left the pile when I ran over here in a hurry. One moment. <laughs> I think the only one I've read is the Stonehouse one. Like, and the, the copy I had had the full report in it, too. Oh, this report? Ah, oh, that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that one. <laughs> I found this in my desk like a week before uh, I found out that you guys were doing this episode. So I was like, well... Well, well. <laughs> is that is that printed on like official Coast Guard paper? Yeah, it's an actual. It was donated. It's an actual copy of it. That's awesome. Oh, nice. I know, right? Isn't it cool? Yeah. So talking about some of these books here, the first one I started with was the Frederick Stonehouse, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I, mm-hmm. I kind of just went chronologically in terms of publication order. That's one that I feel like you see everywhere. If you go to a used bookstore, if they've got a shipwreck section, almost guarantee there's a copy of that book there. I know at at our local half price books, I went into their section and I think they had two or three copies of it in various it's, different editions. There's so many editions of that. Book. It's yeah, the one I'm, I'm. It's the one like I'm most familiar with. I remember bringing that thing to like middle school, like when you had to read for like a class or something. 
I would just bring that that book in and read that and, and read like the NTSB report because I was a normal child. <laughs> uh, so my opinion on the Stonehouse, a really good reference on the subject. And like you just said, Kaylee, kind of the, the earliest, you know, real comprehensive look at it in in an extended book form. Uh, originally published in 1977 and reprinted so many times, um, <laughs> you know, with updated information, you know, different, um, different dives, different expeditions on it, trying to include more of that information. Um, a pretty significant portion of the book is the Coast Guard report and the Lake Carrier Association's rebuttal to that report. Uh, but yeah, that was that was my first real deep investigation uh, in a book about the the storm or about the Fitzgerald. And yeah, I mean, it really filled in a lot of gaps or or things that I thought I knew and that wasn't really the case. I mean, it's it's, it's a good read, I think, especially if you're new to the topic. I think it lays it out pretty succinctly. Next, I read Robert Hemming's Gales of November, which, Kaylee, have you read that one? Is that the, it's dark blue? It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's blue and yellow. It's like Michigan Wolverine's colors. Oh, yep. Yeah. I have that one. Have you read it's it? It's weirdly, he- weirdly heavy. I haven't read all of it. I've referenced it. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's kind of, it's not a strange book, but it, <laughs> it, I don't know. It's, it, it kind of, um, it sort of catches you off guard a little bit. I'll say um, it starts out just as kind of a, a narrative history, uh, mm-hmm. very much in the vein of like the perfect storm or into the raging sea. Um, where it's it's history, but it's presented in a way that's a little bit more interesting to read. And it transitions pretty seamlessly. I would probably argue too seamlessly into like dramatized, not even fictionalized passages, but things that are necessarily entirely fictional. Right. And there really is no indicator like explicit or implicit of when that change is happening i had to go back because i thought i'd missed it but there's not one (laughs) yeah there really isn't so like while it is a good read my thoughts on the book is that this definitely shouldn't be the first or the only thing that someone reads about the fitzgerald i think if you go into it with a knowledge of the the objective established facts of the event it's an entertaining read. It, it, you know, it does bring up a lot of good things and good ideas, but I think that the way it's presented would be confusing or even like misleading to someone. If this was your first exposure to the, to the story. I think it's really hard when you're trying to do like narrative history, nonfiction type stuff to avoid that. Um, you know, it's like the book I just finished that in different stars above, um, he does some of that, but he's very upfront where it's like, surely in this situation, this mother must have thought this about her sick child, like any normal thing. Like he's kind of setting that scene. Whereas it sounds like in this book, there's just straight up parts of dialogue that, I mean, he's kind of just making up. Like, I don't know. You can, you have to be careful um, giving like your own spin on someone's agency in a story mm-hmm. like that, because especially like for family members or something like I'd be pretty upset if you're, if you're painting you know, my family member in like a negative light and you have no idea what was said mm-hmm. in that story. Yeah. So just, I mean, in, in terms of what I'm talking about here um, with Gales in November, you know, you've got very thorough descriptions of, you know, actions and feelings and even full conversations between people who at this point in the book have become characters basically rather than people. Um, and they're included right alongside the objective facts. Uh, 
obviously there's there's no recordings that we have. You know, after that last radio communication, I have no idea mm-hmm. what's happening or what they're talking about um, or what their concerns are. So, yeah, the, I, I thought that, you know, that kind of like from whole cloth construction of dialogue was a little bit weird. It feels a little fan fiction-y. A little bit. I mean, that's that's not a terrible way to describe it. Like, it, yeah, of course, these conversations had to be happening. But like, literally, he's got uh, Captain McSorley and First Mate McCarthy. He's got a, a dialogue between them as the ship is going down. And like, in a sense, that feels, I don't know, a little bit gross. He wasn't there. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's not like I, I wouldn't say it's like egregiously bad. It, hmm. It's an entertaining read, but yeah, it, I would definitely warn some caution to to the reader about it. Um, I didn't realize it got that bad. Yeah, it, it gets pretty pretty detailed huh. um, with things like that. Um, so yeah, I'm I, gonna look at that later. <laughs> several times, several times, I had to like, I had to go back and kind of check to make sure, like, is he talking about like a like a previous conversation, like on a different like ship, or like a few else, years before yeah. it was recorded? Weird. But yeah, there's a lot of that, and that's to some extent a necessary part of like a narrative history like that um and i think some are done better than others that line between where is the speculation and and where is the the history also hemming is really highly critical of both the coast guard report and the ntsb report which come to very similar conclusions basically for their acceptance of the hatch cover theory as opposed to the shoaling theory and like hemming's wording is to the point of being like conspiratorial about this and he never quite comes out and says why, what would be the goal of this conspiracy, this cover up, but he's he's pretty adamant that it's there. I feel like Stonehouse's perspective is a little bit more realistic of like, hey, I think this is what happened, but there's nothing wrong with the shoaling theory. There's just no positive evidence for it. Yeah, uh, that Hemming, especially towards the end of the book, it's kind of like the train is going a little bit off the rails. <laughs> To, to use a different transportation metaphor. It just kind of sounds like he wants to write the Marine Electric story, but the Marine, like, it's not that story. Like, like he wants oh, yeah. that. Everybody wants to write their own Marine Electric. Because that has almost like a true crime feel to it, in a way, of where, you mm-hmm. know, they, like, they're doing the investigations and they find cover-ups by the company. Right. It feels like he kind of badly wants it to be that. And it's just not quite that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next up, Michael Schumacher's Mighty Fits. That one's much more recent. Uh, the Hemming, I think, is from 1983. Yeah, that one's older. I want to say so. More recent than the original Stonehouse, but um, but still, you know, quite old at this point, and before some pretty significant dives and investigations on the wreck. So, with Mighty Fitz from Schumacher, I feel like, and and again, I've talked about him before. I'm a big fanboy of Michael Schumacher's writing. But I feel like the way he presents it, first of all, he's much more distant in time from the actual wreck when he's writing this. Uh, So he's able to include that additional research, these additional discoveries. And I think it allows him to present a very composed and really thoughtful look at the whole story. Um, That's probably the thoughtful is probably the word I would use to describe his writing on it. He addresses a lot of the human issues that are inherent in covering a story like this. You know, where so many people have lost a loved one. So recently, you know, a, a lot of the people affected by this are still alive, you know, wives and, and children and, and friends. So, you know, after after referring to both Stonehouse's book and Hemming's book, the ones we just talked about um, and some other short publications, 
he has this to say, and I'll quote here from page 151 of my copy of Mighty Fits. The appearance of all these books had a mixed effect on the families of the victims. The media attention immediately following the loss of the ship had been overwhelming, thrusting ordinary people into a spotlight they would have preferred to avoid. The publicity, legal issues, and commercialization of the shipwreck seemed to place a new focus on the story, moving the attention from the 29 men on the ship at the bottom of the lake to a marketplace capable of exploiting and selling the story regardless of the family's wishes. The publications presented a dilemma. Each new book opened old wounds, yet each new book kept the story alive. No one wanted a single crew member, or the Fitzgerald story, to slip from memory, yet what one family member might consider a tasteful narrative wound up offending another. Each had a strong opinion about how the story should be told, yet the events that so deeply affected them seemed to have a life of their own, a life that could exceed the family's influence and grasp. So there he, you know, he kind of captures a little bit of what we talked about last week of how do you talk about stories like this in a way that's um, covers it adequately, but it's also doing it in a way that, that conveys adequate respect. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I like about his writing is his his awareness of the difficulty of the topic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he really talks about the very contentious nature of how to deal with this wreck site or grave site to give it, you know, it's it's more proper human a connotation. Uh, he gets into something that I really wasn't aware of. I didn't know how intense this feud was uh, over the Edmund Fitzgerald, specifically between Tom Farnquist and Fred Shannon, two investigators who have both conducted dives on the Fitzgerald. He talks about Shannon's dive. This was actually the first, his dive in, I, I think it was in 1994 or five, um, sometime in the 90s. It was the first to discover, on accident, uh, human remains on the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, so in the process of that, of that dive, uh, photographs and video footage was collected that includes the remains themselves. Um, it seems like Shannon treated the discovery as respectfully as possible. Mm -hmm. Identifying the body as wearing overalls and a canvas life jacket, but doing nothing else to disturb or further examine the body. I mean, I, I think especially coming across that when you... I think at some level you have to expect it because you're investigating a wreck where 29 people died, but you know, that's not what he's looking for. So I feel like in that context, probably as good as you can do. Also, the Canadian government was immediately notified of the discovery uh, since the Fitzgerald does lie in Canadian waters. Shannon's confirmation of the presence of human remains on board the ship prompted action from the Fitzgerald family members in urging the government to declare the wreck off limits to future investigation. So I guess my understanding of this before this happened, I, I guess the idea being that, yeah, there's probably human remains on it, but we don't exactly know. So we, right. we're we not going to, you know, officially declare it off limits or declare it a gravesite. And this kind of, you know, gives everyone the the proof that, you know, was most likely going to be found at some point. On his final visit to the wreck, Shannon placed a memorial plaque on the pilot house of the Fitzgerald, including the names of the 29 who died in the sinking and those who took part in the search. So, yeah, this whole time I, th I knew about the plaque and I knew about the bell being removed from the wreck. I did not know that the people behind those two things were like mortal enemies. <laughs> so the other one here is Tom Farnquist, the director of the Great Lakes Shipwreck Historical Society. 
he was at the time. I don't know if he still is. I, was I on their don't web- think he is. I, I don't. Th- yeah, I don't think so. Just time wise. I was on their website and I was looking for like a about us meet the directors page and they don't have one uh, too ashamed. Um, <laughs> uh, so Farnquist, uh, he organized three expeditions to the wreck, uh, but he was criticized by some for illegally obtaining artifacts for his museum. We've talked about this before. Yeah, not the only time that's happened. Uh, Farnquist was also instrumental in the effort to remove the bell from the Fitzgerald and put it on display. So this had a lot of support from the Fitzgerald family members. However, uh, Shannon called this, quote, the most unethical, self-serving, sneaky approach to artifact removal I have ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so Shannon being very much in the camp of like, okay, he's using this he's trying to get the family's like sympathy so that he can put this in his museum and get people to come visit. I feel like it's one of those situations where he's the only one be like, does everybody not see what this guy's doing? Look, look at <laughs> it. What? I just want to put a bell in my museum. Um, there was actually, I, I didn't include it in the notes, but there was actually an, an issue that came up. There was some sort of, I- some sort of event that I think was going to be held in Canada. It was going to be like, underwater Canada or something. And it was going to feature stuff from the Fitzgerald. And there was the idea thrown around of, Hey, we could get, we could bring the Edmund Fitzgerald bell to this exhibition. And I believe that got shut down because there's a stipulation in the agreement that says, this is not, this is not going to turn into a, 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 a traveling attraction. You know, this is not going to be uh, a Ripley's believe it or not type of thing. Oh yeah. This is not going to be like the Stanley cup with people taking pictures with the, uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald bell, you know, out, out on the street somewhere. So yeah, like there, there's a, there's a lot of kind of legal aspects to it that say this has to stay in the museum. If you want to see it, you got to go to the museum. And that museum is so out of the way that it is. It definitely, definitely a, is. When we went to Sault Ste. Marie for engineers day, we were like, if we have a rainy day, we'll make the drive. And we didn't get to, but it was like, man, it really is like an hour and a half up there. Yeah. I know Taylor, you and I went a long time ago, a long time ago. We were probably in like middle school or something, but it, yeah. yeah, it's, it's out there, <laughs> mm-hmm. but really it is. In- I mean, it is interesting despite some of its, questionable history of artifact acquisition um yeah. it has so, many, so much cool stuff it, it's a great place to visit yeah i mean like like a lot of things you might find in a museum yeah maybe not ethically <laughs> sourced <laughs> exactly i saw the lifeboats at the valley camp when we were in Sault Ste. marie and that was enough fitzgerald for me because <laughs> those are those are heavy if you haven't mm. seen those in person mm-hmm. they're so much more ripped up than you'd even believe from the pictures so yeah, that bell is currently on display at the Great Lake Shipwreck Museum at Whitefish Point. Schumacher's book gives a really even-handed depiction of that feud between Shannon and Farnquist. He doesn't really appear to, to favor one over the other. He does kind of feel that Shannon gets wrongfully maligned for what his investigations pulled up. There's family members who support one or the other, or sometimes both. And there's some that probably support neither of them. Like, I, there's there's probably the whole the whole spectrum of feelings about this. I mean, you've got 29 different people with 29 different families and, and within those families, you've probably got different sentiments about it. There's no good way to come to a consensus with a lot of these things. I mean, I guess my biggest thing is like with Farnquist, like the fact that as soon as I saw his name, I knew what it was about because of, <laughs> because of the Myron stuff. You. It's like you you've done this before. I didn't even know that the Michigan DNR had police until they showed up and raided your place. <laughs> this so. is like, um, this is like in, uh, 
well, there's your problem. And, you know, the male police, the, yeah, the, the various, the various, uh, government agencies that you didn't know had an armed yeah, wing. They need? <laughs> <laughs> and it's because of people like Farnquist. That yes. Things happen. Um, uh, just as an example of, of some of those sort of like disagreements on how this should be handled. Uh, this is a 1995 article about the possible release of Shannon's footage. In that article, Jack Shampo, the brother of Buck Shampo, the third assistant engineer on the Fitz, uh, he was quoted as saying he had no problem with Shannon's use of the visuals as long as the body couldn't be identified. And you can find the image online. It's not identifiable. It's really not even identifiable as a human body. Unless it's pointed out to you, you would never know <laughs> um, what this is. So quoting from Shampo here, the remains should be treated reverently and with respect. But the fact is, the men have died. They're no longer there. I think he has a pretty practical view of it, honestly. That's what it sounds like. I agree. You know? I know why it would be so hot button for people, but at the end of the day, I feel bad for Shannon because he wasn't going down there looking for a body. Right, right. exactly. He doesn't seem to that he tried to exploit it or anything mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, that's something that Schumacher points out is like, if he wanted to, he could have made tons of money right away selling this to, you know, yeah. to the news or you know magazines, whatever. And he, he really didn't. So in contrast to that last one, you know, in, in the, the next paragraph in the same article, uh, Cheryl Rosman, the daughter of Ray Cundy, a watchman on the Fitz, uh, she has a pretty opposite view of this. Uh, she says, quote, I can't believe he's doing this to us. He being Shannon. That is my dad's grave and it should be respected. You don't go digging up graves on land here, looking at bodies, taking pictures. There's laws against that, and there should be laws protecting an underwater grave site. So again, I valid point. There's there's certain ways that we treat human remains on land. Why is that any different here? Uh, there's I don't think there's a good or bad side in this argument. It's you know two still grieving families dealing with things in different ways. I, I feel like that's a big ethical issue. Anytime we're talking about you know preserving history, I feel like it's kind of a niche discussion, but one that's come up a few times that I've read is the fact that we put mummies on display in museums. Like, yeah, this person died four thousand years ago, but still a body. What's the cutoff? When can we? Mm-hmm. When can we? You know, look at a body and take selfies with it and things like that. Um, how old does it have to be? So yeah, I mean, different. Different people have different thoughts on it, and I I don't know how you would come to a consensus on something like that. Um, Also, for Michael Schumacher, uh, he has a book called The Trial of the Edmund Fitzgerald, Eyewitness Accounts from the U.S. Coast Guard Hearings. This one, parts of it are a little bit more dry, but definitely if you have an interest in the wreck, it's going to be of interest. It's a really great supplement to the other readings. Um, Again, you know, maybe don't start with it. It does give an overview of the story. But yeah, once once I think you've done some reading or you're familiar with the story, it's definitely worth diving into. It's very recent. It was published in 2019. Uh, so it's 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 the most up to date discussion you're going to find in book form. It's like the the Salmarillion of Edmund Fitzgerald lore. It totally is. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the downfall of the Edmund Fitzgerald instead of the downfall of Numenor. <laughs> Yeah, so check it out. Uh, there's there's tons of, of stuff to read on this. Uh, there's, I mean, there's also you know documentaries and stuff that you can watch. Um, there's tons of YouTube videos about it. I'm not a huge 
YouTube person, so I didn't really watch any of them. Uh, there's an interview with uh, Captain Bernie Cooper of the the Arthur M. Anderson that you can watch, so you can you know see more or less in person, you know his his thoughts on this. Yeah, it's just a massive topic. There's been tons of stuff published about it. There will probably continue to be stuff published about it. There's there's different theories, and at the moment, there's really just no way to say 100% um, what exactly sank the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, I have one book that I figured you guys wouldn't have grabbed. I grabbed this from the gift shop here at the museum, and I was like, can I borrow this? And Barb said, sure. So <laughs> I think it's really funny. It's called The Night the Fitz Went Down, and it's basically uh, the guy, uh, Captain Pequet, who was on the uh, Wilfred Sykes that night. It's basically just the guy who wrote it, uh, Hugh Bishop, went to Pequet's house on a lake and like just interviewed him on his deck and was like, what do you think happened? And he talks, he talks mostly about like his experience, but there's some stuff that he throws in there that's like, you weren't there. You, do you really know? But it's just, yeah, it's just like an interview with this guy. It's really, it's really I fun. I think I had that book. That book looks so familiar. I think yeah, at some this point. this came out in 2000. So. Yeah, that was definitely like a middle school, high school book that I had. And like, it probably was just a good time to be like, hey, let's go have a beer and talk about the Great Lakes. But I don't know how much it brought new to the discussion of fact, but it was probably a fun book to write. <laughs> Right. I bet it was super fun. And at the end, it's like they get towards uh, like he's been interviewing for him for a really long time. And he's like, uh, the captain stood up from his chair and stretched and looked out the window at the <laughs> and then kept talking about it. It's like, I bet you had a great time doing this. And I wish I'd had the idea first. <laughs> <laughs> that brings me to the end of my prepared notes here. Me personally, I'm glad we waited so long to cover this one. At this point, we know what we want to do with the show. And I think we're, we, we have the technical proficiency to do it now. I'm, I'm glad we didn't do this in, you know, episode two or three for sure. So yeah, I mean, it's been very informative reading about a, a wreck that, you know, I thought I knew decently well, and there was a lot of stuff that was totally new to me. Um, yeah. It's, it's been a very enriching experience to, uh, to do all that research. For sure. It's been, it's been super interesting kind of reexamining it kind of the thing that got a lot of us into this. And it's like, again, the reason that there's so many gift shops with so much Edmund Fitzgerald stuff everywhere around the Great Lakes, like, you don't even have to be on Lake Superior, like you can be anywhere and Edmund Fitzgerald stuff moves, right? It's why it's on shot glasses and and Christmas ornaments, both things that I have. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it is like, it definitely is interesting when um, something like this crosses over into pop culture, right? Like we all like this stuff and it's kind of niche, but it's cool that this is sort of that thing that anyone that knows, you know, anything about shipwrecks knows the Evan Fitzgerald. So, you know, I think it is, it's, it's just super interesting how it impacts all of this. And like you said, I'm glad we waited to kind of not try to do too much. Uh, not just, you know, I don't want to just read the Wikipedia article of the Evan Fitzgerald. Like, that's pretty boring. Like, there's plenty of good resources out there. But no, it's cool to have kind of just have more of a discussion of its impact and everything. Everyone, you know, the story is pretty accessible to most people, but it is cool to kind of reflect back on it and look at it. I have quite a few things. The one article that I shared with you guys in the drive, it was like a Edmund Fitzgerald 40 years later, and they talked to some different people who were related in different ways. But two of them uh, really stuck out to me. The first one, there's a guy named uh, Bob Holm. He sailed uh, under McSorley as a 21-year-old deckhand and deckwatch on a different ship on the Armco, which was also owned by the same company as the Fitz. And uh, he said like he'd let him steer and stuff, and like he was just a really good mentor. But there was this one time uh, when they passed by the Fitzgerald on the Armco going the other way, 
And uh, McSorley looked over at the Fitzgerald and said, and of, of course it's conjecture, he might not have, this could be dramatic, but he says, he said, boy, I'd hate to be on there in a big storm. They got that thing all worn out from years of overloading her. That was five years before it sank. Mm-hmm. So that's a if true, ah, kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind for of sure. thing. I've seen a reference to that quote in, I think the first place I saw it was in the Hemming. So I wasn't, I didn't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's cool to see like, what's the origin of that? It definitely is. Like, that's like a big if true, for sure. I know, yeah, big if true. <laughs> and then same article, they talked to uh, Jim Woodard, who is the son of Cedric Woodard, who was uh, the captain on the Avafors, or the pilot on the Avafors that night. And also the brother of uh, the younger Cedric Woodard, who I am very good friends with because we work together as tour guides on the William A. Irvin Museum ship here in town. So I get beers with him quite often. He's a great, great guy. Awesome. But uh, Jim... Uh, he sailed on the Fitzgerald in 61-62 and then again the 74-75 season. Uh, and his quote is, I called her a wet ship even in the 60s. She took on water all the time and her tunnels flooded out. We always had to go down and pump them out. I didn't like her then and I didn't like her when I was on her before then. I had a gut feeling about her. So on November 10th, 1975, he was actually working on a ship called the Sylvania, which was in Lake Erie. They weren't getting the weather quite as bad, but they were still getting it bad. Um, he was the temporary wheelsman on the Fitzgerald in September 1975, and he wanted off. He hated the Fitzgerald. So, uh, and his his family was like, it's so new. It's so safe. Like, why wouldn't you like it? But he did not like it. So one of his friends on the Sylvania says, uh, hey, we need a full-time wheelsman over here. It's also owned by Ogilvy Norton, Columbia Transportation. So, uh, so Jim called the management and said, if they didn't give him the job on the Sylvania, he'd quit because he didn't want to be on the Fitzgerald anymore. So they let him transfer. <laughs> so he transferred off the Fitzgerald in September of 1975. That's is- fascinating because, um, I feel like so much of the discourse around the kind of the shock of this is like, oh, the ship was so new. Why did it sink? But yeah, then there are these sort of accounts from people who had been on it of saying like, I don't want to be on this ship. <laughs> I didn't like it. I didn't like yeah. it at all. Yeah. There's also um, stuff about the Fitz is totally one of those things that like, you're like, how could it sink? And then you start looking into it and you go, Oh, that's how it can sink. Um, so when the Fitzgerald left superior on November 9th, um, their draft was 27 feet, two inches forward, 27 feet, six inches aft, which was the approved winter draft at the time. When the Fitzgerald was built, the approved winter draft was 24 feet, six inches. So they incrementally were changing it in 1969, 1971, 1973 to make room for more cargo. So to put it uh, in a different way, the Fitzgerald was built to have 14 feet, nine inches of their hull above the waterline. So freeboard in the winter. But November 1975, they were sailing with 11 feet, six inches of their hull above the waterline. Each extra inch of draft that's lowering means that you can add uh, 110 to 130 additional tons of cargo. Wow. So the ship was not built for this extra weight, plus how much lower it was sitting. The first recommendation in the Coast Guard report was to rescind those changes immediately. And they did it a little later, but they did do it. So it was carrying so much more weight than it should have. And it was sitting so much lower than it should have. If you're getting waves that are 30 feet and you're only sitting 11 feet above the waterline. Yeah. 
It's interesting how often um, those load lines come into play in a lot of these stories, especially some of the more modern ones that we do, that these things do gradually get pushed further and further and further. And before you know it, yeah, you're looking at a two foot difference from where you started. And you're like, you're right, like all the strain and stress on the hull that that creates and everything like it's, it's not insignificant. Classic example of something that you could see working in almost any field where something that probably looks good on a spreadsheet and makes a lot of sense. Like, of course, hey, if we lower this thing an inch, we can put X amount of of more cargo and make this much more money. And then when put into practice, anyone looking at this thing can probably see like this shouldn't be like this. This this is not going to end well. Also, that's interesting, you know, pointing out with how low she's riding in the water, because so much of the the people who are very, very, very adamant about the shoaling theory that, you know, she she ripped out her bottom and she was taking on water that way and only that way. You know, a lot of it centers around the fact that there's no way she was taking this much water, um, you know, over her deck. And it's like when you look at this, well, maybe she was. <laughs> she sure could um, have been. Very, very possible. The energy of the wave, the weight of the water, which is something mm-hmm. I hadn't even thought about until I was talking about this with one of my coworkers today. Just crazy. Yeah, the all of that. As we all as we know, overloading a ship always goes well. Right. Exactly. It's always fine. <laughs> <laughs> the only other last piece that I had was something. Uh, the Fitzgerald had a sister ship, which not a lot of people realize. Some people immediately think, oh, the Arthur M. Anderson was the sister ship. No, they were just out there. They weren't built in the same shipyard. None of that. None of that at all. So the Fitz's actual sister ship was a ship called the Arthur B. Homer. And the Homer was actually being lengthened uh, uh, at uh, Fraser Shipyards in Superior, uh, Wisconsin. They were being lengthened to 825 feet when the Fitz went down. So that's where they were when the Fitz went down. Went back into service with its uh, new longness, December 1975. Sailed until 1980. And then it sat at the wall until it was sold for scrap in 1986. So they had just put millions of dollars into this boat. It only sails for five years and then it's scrapped. That's something that makes people go, hmm. But something that really makes me go, hmm, is apparently the chairman of the uh, NTSB requested a trip on the Homer in 1978. Not to be like something fishy going on with this ship, but just, hey, can I have a ride on the ship as people uh, are wont to do who are in positions of power? And Bethlehem Steel said no. Interesting. They put him on a different one. They said, nope, real fast. So <laughs> that's something that, I don't know, <laughs> you can draw your own conclusions. But yeah, that, that is fascinating with the, the longevity of this, you know, putting all this money into it and not really getting much out on the other end. Yeah, five years. Cool. That's a lot of great stuff we've got there uh, to finish things up here. Yeah, so I guess the... Long story short with the Fitzgerald is that there's basically an inexhaustible amount of things to to read and discuss. Um, again, that's why it retains so much interest. And yeah, some someday maybe we have definitive answers. Um, at the moment, it is it uh, it remains a mystery. So I guess uh, if we're wrapping things up here, thank you again, Kaylee, for coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. It's great uh, to have you. Thank you for having me. Doing all this research, I felt like that one episode of It's Always Sunny where he's trying to find Pepe Sylvia. He's got all the stuff on the wall connecting the dots <laughs> and the oh, strings. Yeah. That's exactly... I was, <laughs> Scott got, uh, got to the office the other day and I was like, I've solved it. I know why the Edmund Fitzgerald sank. <laughs> <laughs> and Robert Hemming kicks down the office door. He says, no, you don't. <laughs> 
Um, we'd love to have you back on the show to discuss another wreck. I know you have a wealth of knowledge about these things. Mm-hmm. If you ever um, get Lake Superior again, I'm your gal. <laughs> there's there's quite a few we could cover um, from there. I feel like Lake Superior is kind of like our, like how countries have strategic oil reserves. And <laughs> I, think, I feel like Lake Superior is kind of like that, where it's Always kind of a, something. it's guaranteed to be a good story. And it's just trying to like, you know, siphon off a little bit at a time. I definitely feel like, yeah, if we've done a bunch of like kind of in-depth ones that involve a lot of research or translation, I'm like, you know what? Let's just go back to Lake Superior. Let's, let's do what we do. We'll, just <laughs> yeah. do. we'll do one of those. Yeah. I mean, like Isle Royale alone has like mm-hmm. a bunch. Uh, and most of those really are messed up. Kamloops? Oof. So yeah, we'll definitely, definitely have Kaylee back on the show. There was one more thing I was going to add and I forget what it was. Oh, another thing I was going to say is we... We need to cool it with the uh, the big name high intensity research wrecks for a little bit. This season we've done the Noronic. We did Estonia. Oh yeah. <laughs> we did um, Marine Electric. Marine Electric. Um, we we've knocked out a lot of the big name ones uh, this season. We need to we need to go into the obscure vaults. Um, Titanic and- next week. <laughs> yeah. Just do it. Just do the thing. Just real fast. Part one of 15 on the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, so that's cool. So I guess I'll wrap things up here and I'll just say thank you all for listening. Um, if you made it with us uh, this far, um, if you didn't rage quit after episode one. And uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, some more content for you. Uh, we're also going to be working on our bonus stuff for the month of July. We'll have a standard bonus episode and a dead reckoning episode for you. Um, So keep an eye out for those and we will talk to you all soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of beyond the breakers. We love hearing from listeners. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a couple of ways you can do that. We're on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. We're on Instagram at beyond the breakers podcast. Our email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon set up for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, covers things like web hosting fees, research materials, the occasional hardware upgrade to keep the show sounding as good as possible. We appreciate all of the support in any way it comes. The simplest way to support the show is just to listen and share it with your friends. Other ways to support the show include leaving ratings and reviews, Ratings and reviews really help us. They help the show stay visible. They help more people find the show and they make us feel good. So any of those ways you can support the show is greatly appreciated until next time. Take care.